Hey, everyone. Have you ever loved a movie so much you thought you loved the book till you had to do a podcast on the book and realized all your favorite quotes are from the movie, so now you're panicked about your level of preparation? Today's book is Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, but actually by Emma Thompson. That preface just applies to Dave. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and a big Jane Austen fan. And if you are too, you're not going to like some of what I have to say today. And I'm David Vance. For me, this book is in the category, do I like the book or just love the movie? Along with Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and Ralph Waldo Emerson's Shrek. (laughs) Sense and Sensibility teaches what I believed as a kid. If you like someone, keep it to yourself at all costs, and one day you will inexplicably get together. And this is The Book File. All right, quick reminder to please rate and review the book pile, or in the spirit of this book, tell us you're going to, but then string us along and break our hearts. <laughs> Better Heaven 10 says, I agree, does Harry Potter even need Ron? He's such a lame character. <laughs> Five stars. On that subject, little schedule change. Next week for our 50th episode, we're doing the Half-Blood Prince. Cool. What's the other half? <laughs> All right, and without any further ado, here are our four favorite lessons from Sense and Sensibility. I almost said Pride and Prejudice, probably because I would rather be discussing that book. (laughs) All right, lesson one, don't be selfish, even if you're hot. (laughs) Although I will say, if you're hot, people may let it slide. (laughs) You're you're a lot more likely to be called outgoing. (laughs) So Willoughby is the hottest guy in the book. I'll say. And again, (laughs) I'm basing this completely on the movie. But honestly, he is the most fun, like between the stoic Colonel Brandon and the quiet church-headed Edward. But Willoughby is also, to me, the darkest villain of any Jane Austen novel. So he toys and flirts with a teenage girl, and only then later showing up to apologize when he thinks she's dying. And even then, he only relays the apology to her sister. (laughs) But I love this moment because Marianne is taken in by his charm and his good looks and his ridiculous sideburns that point directly into his mouth. It's to show you where to kiss. (laughs) So towards the end, Eleanor is having this heart-to-heart with Marianne, because Marianne is like, why are you calling him selfish even after everything that has happened in the book? Eleanor says specifically, the whole of his behavior has been grounded on selfishness. It was selfishness which first made him sport with your affections, which afterwards made him delay the confession of it, and which finally carried him from Barton, end quote. Meaning that his ultimately getting married to someone much wealthier than Marianne. So as slow as this book is, for me, the funniest part in all Jane Austen's novels is a moment in this book between Eleanor and her youngest sister, Margaret, who very early is, she's determined that Willoughby is attached to Marianne. So Eleanor says... Basically, that one time you thought she was wearing a locket of him, but it turned out to be a miniature of our great uncle. And Margaret says, this is different. I'm sure they'll be married very soon, for he has a lock of her hair. 
And Eleanor responds with, take care, Margaret. It may be only the hair of some uncle of his. (laughs) (laughs) That's one, a great burn. And two, how sweet if that were true. (laughs) Sweet and a little odd. And I'm not just saying this because uh, I unfortunately don't have hair anymore. But I do think it would be a little creepy if I went up to one of my nephews like... Here, keep this. It's a bunch of my hair. <laughs> like, hey, pretty sure I can just message you on Facebook, Uncle Kellen. No, keep this hair. And here is your locket. <laughs> yeah, you know. You know how people wear lockets of their aunts and uncles. <laughs> Also, I think it's crazy that even in Willoughby's confession to Eleanor at the end of the book, he still claims that he was just passing the time with Marianne. But taking someone's hair, cutting someone's hair off, is hardly a casual way to pass the time with a friend, right? <laughs> like like if, was, if I was hanging out with my buddy and came home and my wife was like, did you have a good time? And I was like, oh yeah, you know, Justin and I <laughs> talked for a while. And then I cut off a piece of his hair to keep. (laughs) All right, lesson two. Use the power of contrast. Or if you're wealthy, you can say juxtaposition. So throughout the book, I think, the older sister, Eleanor, is always just so composed and she keeps everything really close to the chest. She's always the practical one. My sister Cassie pointed out, This type of woman doesn't usually get to be the main character. (laughs) And so since she's so reserved, the moments of raw emotion are just super powerful and memorable. It's the same principle as when Kellen gives me a compliment. So, for instance, she she thought Edward was married to this terrible woman, and she finds out, oh, it's not him, it's his brother. And she just bursts into tears, and it's such a memorable scene. Or this other great scene, Marianne says, Eleanor, where is your heart? And Eleanor finally lays into her and says all that she suffered and says, believe me, Marianne, had I not been bound to silence, I could have provided proof enough of a broken heart even for you. Hmm. And it's, again, this incredible scene. And also the most on-brand part of it is that then Eleanor has to comfort Marianne. (laughs) Anyway, I think there's power in that contrast where her emotional moments hit harder because they're so different and they're so rare. So Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, says, the big dramatic moments of action, the big operatic moments you're striving for, I don't think would land as hard if you didn't have the moments of quiet that came before them. The quiet episodes make the more dramatic episodes pop even more just by their contrast. That's why in Breaking Bad, a lot of the murders happen quietly. (laughs) So for me, whatever your field is, maybe contrast can make something pop even more. So in food science, they use dynamic contrast between tastes and textures. And that's why Oreos are both crunchy and creamy. So you can use contrast to get people to make terrible choices. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why I can't... I love soda, but I can't eat candy while I'm drinking soda. And I know that you haven't experienced either of those things since you were 12. But for me, if I'm drinking soda, I have to be eating something like chips, you know, to cleanse the palate, if you will. (laughs) To get the whole whole food pyramid. (laughs) Liquids and Krispies. (laughs) To me, both of those things together, they make each other individually that much more enjoyable. Because of that contrast? Right. Because of that juxtaposition. (laughs) 
Okay. Now that you're doing shows again. (laughs) Contrast is also huge in psychology. So Kahneman and Tversky wanted to know, hey, how happy is a person with a million dollars? And they said, well, that depends. Yesterday, did they have $2 million? (laughs) Hey, back when you used to eat sugar, what was like? (laughs) I didn't stop because I'm like disciplined. I stop because I have arthritis, and when I eat sugar, it gets so much worse. <laughs> oh, man. This is... <laughs> you waited 49 episodes to drop that bomb? <laughs> like, every every other podcast, I feel like I throw you under the bus for being overly health conscious, but you're like, no, it literally kills my body. <laughs> is that a hereditary thing, or is that just... My dad has it, too. Um, My dad and my brother both have it. Is it a brother I know? Number five, Josh. Oh, okay. I feel like all of us have a brother, Josh. (laughs) Because I do. Statistically, that's true. (laughs) That's that's my youngest brother. It's it's like a zoning ordinance. (laughs) Like if you're building a house and a family. (laughs) All right. Lesson three. A great ending barely justifies a boring first half. (laughs) We call it the way of kings principle. (laughs) I say barely because I still think reading a classic novel is one of the best ways to spend your time, even if it moves slower than a shrugging atlas. And I say this as a huge Jane Austen fan. Emma Holds a Tie is my favorite book, and Pride and Prejudice I read uh, every other year. But for me, those novels have more striking stories from the outset and characters with greater character. But the first chapter of Sense and Sensibility is this lengthy backstory about the Dashwoods' inheritance, and it just crawls along from there. (laughs) You know what's riveting literature is inheritance law. (laughs) That's what it is. You have the first uh, line of Pride and Prejudice memorized, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see. I think it's, it is a truth universally agreed upon that a single man in possession of a great fortune must be in want of a wife. (laughs) And so that's fun, and it's funny, and it's sort of tongue-in-cheek. The first line of Sense and Sensibility is... Wait, can I try? Yes. Mr. Dashwood was dead. There can be no doubt. <laughs> you literally could have, she could have written the chapter in four words. But the the first line of the book is, the family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. And the only reason why you want to continue on is because there's the word sex in that sentence. <laughs> there was a story a few years ago about a water tower that they were painting in Sussex, New Jersey. The story was, oh, how embarrassing. These painters took a lunch break halfway through their painting job, so this water (laughs) tower just had the word sex on it. But it's like, no, (laughs) this wasn't like, whoops, because nobody paints words backwards. (laughs) There's no reason for them. (laughs) Are these guys da Vinci? Like... Painting from right to left. (laughs) 
So if you're an Austin purist, you're going to consider this blasphemy, the fact that I'm saying that a lot of this book is boring. But I feel like I'm fair to all of our, I treat all of our books fairly. And while this story eventually builds toward a satisfying ending fraught with dramatic twists, the other 75% of the book is a bit of a Regency slog. (laughs) And by the way, if you disagree, I only want to hear from you if you loved the book first and then saw the movie. <laughs> if it's the other way around, Dave, you, you were saying that this is how you experienced the book. It, it's a very different experience seeing the movie first, because then you get to imagine things like even Mr. Palmer as Hugh Laurie, who plays a likable jerk in the film, but in the book, he's just a regular jerk. Did you notice that? <laughs> There's... There's nothing redeeming about him. I genuinely can't tell because I saw the movie first and my memory of the movie is so strong that it's like impossible for me to read the book and not be seeing the movie in my mind. Sure. Yeah, I think that happens. That's why I had my kids read the Harry Potter books before seeing the movies, because I know that that can happen. You know, sometimes you can't unsee what's now been placed in your head as who this character is. I'm going to make my kids read the Constitution before they see how it's interpreted today. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that the 1995 movie provides a new filter through which the book becomes more fun than it is actually written. And I also know that in naming that movie that there are a few stalwart fans out there who are like, actually, in... 1971, the BBC produced a version of it that's much better, and it's 37 hours long. (laughs) So my takeaway is that if you're going to write a very slow story, at least make sure that there's a movie about it that people can watch first. (laughs) All right, lesson four. Two opposite ideas can often learn from each other. So when you say opposite ideas, do you mean ideas that are juxtaposed to each other. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) So for me, one of the running themes in this book is that each sister should probably be a little more like the other one. So if if Marianne chilled out like 20%, she wouldn't embarrass herself. She wouldn't ruin her prospects. She definitely wouldn't get deathly ill because she's moping in the rain. (laughs) Meanwhile, Eleanor would be so much happier if just once she said to Edward, hey, dude, I'm super into you. What's your deal? And he's like, oh, I'm in a foolish engagement. She's like, cool, dude. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> I have brought this up before, but there's, there's a paraphrase of a Niels Bohr quote where he says, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may well be another profound truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so on that idea of profound truths that are opposites, do you ever think about how be generous and be frugal are both good advice? Oh. <laughs> or be confident and be humble? So basically, whatever principle you care about, is there anything you can learn from an opposing principle? Mm. And I worry about the fact that politically, we only fight with each other. We don't really talk to each other, because I think we probably have important things to say to each other. All right, random facts. So we've made jokes before about how Ninja Turtles characterizes their characters right in the opening song. I love that Jane Austen just does it right in the title. (laughs) She's like, okay, there's two girls, and I'm just going to tell you right up top what their deal is. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we should do that with other things, like Star Wars would be whiny, cocky, and abrasive, (laughs) or Little Women is spunky oldest, hated till very recently, and dead. (laughs) I ran that joke by my sister Jess to see if I had the best word for Meg, and Jess said, 
She's loving, but not as loving as Beth. And she's vain, but not as vain as Amy. So oldest is probably most descriptive. <laughs> it's like, uh, I've literally been in a band where I was the bass player because I was not the best pianist, drummer, or guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing the the keyboard in a band in like my early 20s. I wasn't good friends with the guy running the band. I just knew the guitarist. And one time they're like, uh, hey, instead of a guitar solo on this song, we'll go into a keyboard solo and you just do your thing, man. And like, (laughs) I'm just classically trained. I have like zero experience with rock improv on the piano. (laughs) And so we get into the solo part and I'm just playing just random notes. I don't know what I'm doing. And then when the song is over, the band leader, the drummer, he very seriously steadies his cymbals and looks at me and he goes, that's not what I thought would happen. (laughs) (laughs) A few times have I felt so small. (laughs) (laughs) Then in this moment where I was expected to do a thing that not even was I, like, not very good at, I had zero idea what to do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this, I think the movie Sense and Sensibility is a fun spinoff to Harry Potter, showing Professor Snape, Trelawney, and Umbridge during one of their summers off. (laughs) I gotta say, Trelawney is a lot more put together, and it really complicates Snape saying that he's pined for Lily all this time. (laughs) It's sort of Edward telling Bella that she's the first. (laughs) You actually do see a little bit of Snape in the the movie. Um, The first time that you meet Colonel Brandon, uh, Alan Rickman, when Margaret asks him, what was the West Indies like? And then he leans in and he goes, the air is full of spices. (laughs) You feel a little bit of the potions master come out of him. (laughs) Another thing is that Marianne hating his guts and then suddenly falling in love with him really speaks to someone being good at making potions. This is yeah. This is my other my other issue with the book is that they really and even the movie as as great as the movie is too. They really give very little reason for Marianne to get with Colonel Brandon other than his being a rebound. <laughs> for the move, the entire movie he doesn't even talk to her. He just carries her through the rain, and she's like, "Well, you know, this is my thing." <laughs> Is that all any of us had to do to get with Kate Winslet? (laughs) Just bring her somewhere with water? (laughs) That's what Leo did. It also fits Professor Trelawney that she did not see the twist coming. (laughs) I do love the touches that Emma Thompson put into the film adaptation, including that we see a lot more of their youngest sister, Margaret, who really only has like Mm -hmm. three lines in the entire novel. But she becomes a useful character in the sense that it gets us to start rooting for Edward Ferris right off the bat Uh, when he plays with her. You know, on his first visit to their cottage, they're fighting swords and he looks through the windows to wave to uh, to Eleanor. And then Margaret hits him in the crotch. 
<laughs> while they're fighting swords. It just makes him a lot more endearing, whereas throughout most of the novel, he's just sort of like arms folded looking at the ground like, yeah, I wish I could start a church. <laughs> so my mom pointed this out to me. At the beginning, Marianne doesn't believe in second loves. She thinks true love only happens once. And by the end, almost every marriage is a second love. Edward was engaged to Lucy. Marianne loved Willoughby. Colonel Brandon loved a girl long ago. Lucy was engaged to Edward. Even their dad was married twice. The only one who didn't have two loves was the author. (laughs) And I'm allowed to make that joke because I have four younger married siblings. (laughs) So I think it's funny that The book talks about Marianne's huge emotions and her melodrama like it's a character flaw and hardly ever mentions that she's 16. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's like if a character's flaw were bedwetting and you don't bring up that they're two. (laughs) By the way, Shakespeare at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet is like, this is a story of star-crossed lovers. It's high stakes. It's romantic. By the way, she's 13, so I hope you're cool with that. Yeah, it's it's crazy to me how how much we've overlooked that over the past 600 years. But it does make more sense because like when you're a kid, you think that young people are super old. And at one point, Marianne speaks negatively of Colonel Brandon mentioning that he's quote on the wrong side of 35. <laughs> I was like, you dumb little girl. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, that should be off-putting to a (laughs) (laughs) 16-year-old. That is fair, and it's something that they don't mention in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think in the movie they just aged them both up. Mm. So Emma Thompson's script was originally 350 handwritten pages. What? Yeah. For context, a typical movie script comes in at around 90 typed pages. Um, and she also went through 13 drafts. And I don't, wow. I don't have a joke for this, but to me, this it just speaks, again, to the advantage of rewriting. You couldn't do one more draft to find a good joke. <laughs> I think it's pretty amazing because uh, apparently Jane Austen only went through one. Also, (laughs) (laughs) no, I don't know. But I do, as much as I disparage a lot of this book, I also do very much appreciate the fact that every novel was handwritten back then. So I can't imagine, like, even Stephen King, who has gone through, you know, the generation of, of typewriters and into word processing, where he says that, You're basically, you have the time now to do a third draft uh, on every novel because of the the power. But back then, I can't imagine, you know, writing some hundreds of pages of something with a quill and then thinking, (laughs) maybe I just need to move a few paragraphs around now. (laughs) Or imagine it's a, a document like the Declaration of Independence and you get a blot when you're almost done. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder how many other countries would have been free by now, but they just keep messing up. (laughs) Also, Emma Thompson is the only person to ever have won Oscars for both acting and writing. Wow. Which I think is cool. There have been 
a few actors who have been nominated for writing or one for writing and not for acting like Matt Damon. But one of, one of the five who has won for acting but only nominated for a screenplay is, uh, I think, obvious to all of us, uh, Sir Peter Ustinov, who won Best Actor in 1964's Tokapi <laughs> and nominated uh, for writing the movie Hot Millions. <laughs> he's he's going to get it. It's going to come. <laughs> Please tell me we're ending on a Peter Ustinov joke. <laughs> so I have three songs that show up unannounced in my head at any time at random, and they are, for no reason, Chocolate by the band Snow Patrol, Deck the Halls, <laughs> and Weep You No More Sad Fountains uh, from this movie. I like to think that from time to time, Art Garfunkel would like sing along to Paul Simon's solo albums. <laughs> so during a scene in the movie where Colonel Brandon approaches Marion on horseback, they were forced to do numerous takes because of his horse's excessive flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently, it was so gratuitous that they ended up just having to use a couple of the takes and edit around the farting because the horse wouldn't stop. <laughs> oh, man. Like, there are a few things that I would have loved to see more than the bad guy from Die Hard trotting up on a gassy horse. Respell it as sense and sensibility. <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from sense and sensibility. One, don't be selfish even if you're hot. Two, use the power of contrast. Three, a great ending barely justifies a boring first half. Four, two opposite ideas can often learn from each other. And five, if you're going on a first date, don't bring a horse. <laughs>